0: The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. We also hear their cry and will save them. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Let us bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. God, Savior, above. Again, we come before you again, Lord, with grateful hearts, thankful, God, for the opportunity to be here, for the protection and the freedom, God, that we have to worship you, even though it is, in some regards, a restricted manner. We are thankful, Lord, it is not as restrictive as it was the time of our forefathers who had to worship in caves and in dens and in wildernesses, Lord, and in fields and in forests. Precious God, we are thankful again. We pray for continued freedom. Again, Lord, thankful that we have a little more freedom now with restrictions statewide uh, relieved uh, of us. We pray, God, for continued protection and prosperity, not for America as such, uh, Lord, but uh, for the sake of the church. Certainly, Lord, we love our neighbors and do not wish the worst for them, God. But we know often in the West prosperity brings about blindness and hardness of heart, God, where they feel they have no need of you, Lord, unless they lose all that they have. Precious Lord, we pray especially for Christians in their employments, for protection of the churches, God, for upright laws to be maintained and sustained and promoted, God. Our leadership, not only within the church, Lord, but outside the church, especially uh, those who have influence, God, and uh, can hurt or harm or even protect God, which is what we certainly pray. The Church of Jesus Christ in America, <clears throat> we pray to that end, Lord, for the Church to be faithful in America. That more and more churches would be less and less satisfied with churches and leadership uh, that are weak and poor on uh, doctrine and discipline and practice of their life, God, who make excuses for sins and rake sins, God, and who make uh, entertainment, Lord, uh, the foundation of the church instead of sound preaching and proclamation of Jesus Christ and his word for us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would move the hearts of your people in those churches uh, to demand better, uh, if need be, and to er- encourage and urge. And even if possible, Lord, if it is required that they replace their leadership with better leadership, God. And certainly, Lord, for the members themselves to examine their hearts and to wonder why they accepted worse or bad churches, God. And we pray for ourselves as well, that we would, Lord, examine ourselves and our churches to be wise with what you've given us, Lord, and not to be haughty, uh, but at the same time to be zealous for your holiness and for your truth. And thus we pray for our faithful church in America, faithfulness in the OPC, to be more faithful, and indeed for all churches across this nation, God, both in doctrine and and in practice, and again, especially for the leadership, because they lead. And they are an example. They are an influence in the church unto rightness, unto righteousness. And we pray to that end, God, for your church to be purified in America and to sustain a great and powerful witness to a lost and dying nation. We pray, God, in particular this week, as we end this Lord's Day, at the beginning of a new week, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, giving us a new future, Lord, and a new heavens and a new earth to come. We pray for our vocations and calling in life, God, for this week, take care of it daily as a mother, as a father, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a citizen of this nation, as a worker on our job, Lord, as a member of a club, whatever it may be, those are our callings, those are our vocations, those are the places you put us in your providence to use the tools you've given us, that we have, thankfully, a common language, a common culture, a common understanding, common enough, Lord, that it's less of a burden uh, to communicate the truth which is already a hard truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but certainly, Lord, to do our callings, to do our duty. And, Lord, we are certainly not called to be missionaries as such, but simply to be ready and able to give an answer of the hope that is within us. But always, Lord, to to work hard as unto you, uh, to love our children, to love our uh, husband and our wife, Lord, to submit to our husband, Lord, uh, for the children to submit to their parents, God above, for citizens to submit to their leaders, In the nation of ours, Lord, but also have wisdom to know how to push back, to vote, and to uh, rally appropriately, Lord, again for our family and for our churches. Our God and Savior, may we not be discouraged with the vocations and callings that we have, but help one another. It is especially hard, again, in this day and age, which we don't live near each other like they did for many generations across the world and in America. And so, God, may we pray and send letters and encourage one another as we're
1: able, Lord to do our callings, to do our vocations, to do it heartily and cheerfully unto the Lord. In your name alone we pray, amen. Let us turn to our Bibles, to Zechariah chapter 9. We were there this morning. It was a little different, right? Lord's Supper in the morning, and then four more verses afterwards in the afternoon. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. Zechariah 9, verses 12
0: and following. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah at my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpets and go with the whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with slingshots, sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day. As the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown. Lifted like a banner over his land, for how great is its goodness. How great is its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and the new wine the young women. Let us pray. With this glorious prophecy, God, we see how you are a stronghold for your people. In fact, God, you have empowered your people uh, to do your will, to subdue the enemies of God, and to stand firm and to protect themselves, Lord. We're thankful for that reality in history, as we shall see, and also especially in the
1: history of our own souls, Lord, and the life of our church. In your name alone, we pray. Amen. God is there for us, brothers and sisters. He's not there
0: for us in the way charismatics may think, the way I was raised. People who seek for signs and miracles, a bolt from the blue. But God is nevertheless there, and he actually in many ways a more tangible. All the miracles I heard about and the amazing things were always second hand in those circles. I think that's not a coincidence. Today, and even during the time of the prophet like Zechariah, today God uses the ordinary means of providence. I had preached on the special providence of God towards his people, how he protects them and guides them and prospers them in the midst of difficulties. In fact, as we will see in this text, he used Israel herself to protect herself and to stop the enemies of God. And let us see in particular how God empowers his people to protect themselves, to grow in sanctification, and to even prosper if it is his will. And so the first point, God empowers his people, which is an underlying theme in these verses, in fact, as we'll see in the next set of verses. Verse 12 and 13, As for you, because of the blood, uh, excuse me, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore devil to you. God's going to bless them. For I have bent Judah my bow, and fitted the bow with Ephraim. They are like weapons in God's hands. They are first of all called to flee to the stronghold. That's clearly God himself. Flee to God. God urges Israel to flee the prisoner of their pit. As we read in verse 11, As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And they should return to the stronghold, the prisoners of hope. I will deliver you, the dry pit that represented their hopeless situation, being surrounded by the enemies of God, being small and outnumbered, the daunting task of rebuilding the temple that is the kingdom of God, and and a very physical manifestation, of course, that we don't have today, yet we still have, in many regards, more clearly, the kingdom of God. To flee from the difficult situations in life that they had found themselves in, and the trust in God to overcome that situation. They don't give up on the situation. They're not fleeing the land. They're not saying, okay, it's too hot in here. We're out of here, right? It's too hot. Can't handle the heat. And leave the kitchen. No, God tells them to stay in the promised land. So they can't leave their situation. All they have left then is to flee to God and to cling to God. Not in some romantic or abstract way, but as we will see and as we have seen historically in a concrete way. First, of course, with their heart. They believe in God. They believe he will Save them. He has promised that He will be their stronghold, their tower, their protection, their fortification in times of need. And God has shown that to them in the Old Testament in a special manner, of course, physically, materially, in warfare itself. They are called to trust in God and act upon that trust. And they are. They are bows and arrows in God's hands, as we read to verse 13. Before then, at the end of verse 12, we read, that he declares to them, it's a proclamation of hope that they would not be discouraged, that God is with them. I will restore double to you, to restore double to them of the land they lost, of the prosperity they lost, ultimately of everything they lost, the time and the health and everything. Seventy years in captivity. Seventy years of punishment. Seventy years of difficulty living in a strange land, a foreign land with a foreign tongue. And they ended up living in ghettos, essentially. They had to.
1: If uh, all of the Americans had to move out and end up Canada, French Canada, <laughs> or Mexico to flip the political picture, we would be
0: very uncomfortable. We would have a very hard time. It's, it's a foreign culture, a foreign way of speaking and living. It's very discouraging. But God brought them back and he's encouraging them. You're not there anymore. You're with your people, you're in the land of promise, but they still had strangers with them—people who spoke a different language, a different culture. The Canaanites or the Philistines, in particular, those up north, and other enemies that he promises to overcome and to protect them from. God is there, promising a double restoration. When I read of doubling to them, my first thought, although it may not be the immediate thought of the text, I believe as such. But uh,
1: you know, when we are the firstborn,
0: the firstborn are given the double portion. And God here, of course, has them as his firstborn children, although not the theme here, and he will give them, and gives us a double portion of heaven. Now, to restore them double, to give them back their lost land, their prosperity, their health, and even their dominion, is ultimately heaven, isn't it? Not just a single fold, you get the land back. A double fold, you get more than land back. In fact, we own the entire world through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the master of this world, and we are his servants. And to the extent that he deigns to divvy out the land that is his, he gives it to us. And that's going to be what we're going to see in heaven. The new heaven and new earth. Praise be to his name. So although we are like Israel at times, filling ourselves, uh, certainly in 2020, which we're still in 2020, although we're in 2021, Feel ourselves to be prisoners in a waterless pit, the difficult times of our personal lives or collective lives as well, God tells us he will restore us double for the heartaches that we have. Whatever you have lost, Christ says, you will gain more in God's kingdom. You will have brothers and sisters in abundance, he says. Do you believe that? That's what Jesus talks about. And that's what this text is referring to, although in a faint fashion. It actually happened, of course, historically, as we shall see in verse 13. For I have bent Judah my bow and fitted the bow with Ephraim. You can see, obviously, there, the metaphor. I have bent Judah, my bow. Judah is the bow. He's a, a weapon of warfare. And fitted the bow with what? An arrow. Ephraim is an arrow in that bow. They are weapons in God's hands to raise up the sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Greece? What in the world? <laughs> what do they have to do? What do the sons of Zion have to do with the sons of Greece at this time? Nothing. Greece was so far away, it might as well be on the other side of the world. And I know it's still in the same place that is the Mediterranean Ocean. But back then when you travel by foot, or by slow boat, if you had a boat, they didn't have massive fleets like we have today, or certainly not quick boats like we have today. It still took a long time to get to Greece, to get to Macedonia, in the upper part of Greece, the other side of Turkey. I can imagine the Jews here thinking, what do we have to do with Greece? They're not bothering us right now, and they aren't. No, as I pointed out in the prior verses, Greece bothers their enemies. right? Alexander the Great comes up a few hundred years later and wipes out all the enemies of Israel. And after Greece dominates the Middle East there in the Mediterranean
1: area, Israel rises up and overthrows Grecian rule during the revolt of the Maccabees. The historical event that happened between the
0: Testaments in about 175 B.C. The Mecca... The Maccabean revolt after Alexander the Great died. His kingdom was divided. He died suddenly, so it wasn't a clean division, and he had some conflict, and it broke up into four different areas by four generals, more or less. And the area ruled by Antiochus, the area in the Middle East here, he stopped the temple worship, destroyed the book of the law, the Torah rolls, forbade circumcision, and sacrificed a pig. On the altar in the temple. You see how he treated the church of God in the Old Testament? He treated them
1: with disdain. He hated them. And you can imagine the Jews. I don't know all the stories of the
0: Maccabean revolt, but uh, act kind of nice for a bit. You smile a little bit and you plot <laughs> revenge. Revenge in the best sense because they were defending God's land. God's worship, and God's temple. And God had told them to use the sword to do these things. Remember that. We have not been given that to defend the church as such, although uh, we will do it by natural law if we have to, but they were given divine revelation in that regards. And so God raised up Israel to fight back against Greece. As we read in verse 13, Judas Maccabeus who ra- was raised up by God's special providence, and they beat the superior foe of the Grecian army, and gained independence for about 100 years. Again, we read in Zechariah the prophecies of the future being fulfilled. Greece, the time of Zechariah, was a distant shadow of nothing. It meant nothing to them. And yet he's warning them and telling them encouraging them, this is going to happen, and you're going to be victorious. I'm going to work through providence. And they were basically fighting guerrilla warfare, and they won. It's quite amazing. Now, today, again, we don't have such promises uh, that God will give us warfare against Greece. Greece is no longer a powerhouse and probably never will be, like Egypt and never will be. And all the old empires and Babylon and the
1: Persian Empire, gone. The dustbin of history. But rather, we have a spiritual battle. Now, Minder,
0: they too had a spiritual battle, but also had overtones of physical fighting don't forget that. It wasn't like they were crass materialists. They believed they were doing the right thing and they were doing the right thing. It was a spiritual battle of pagan worship coming to Christian worship and destroying Christian worship. That's a spiritual battle. How you worship God. We had this in the 80s and 90s the worship battles in the in the evangelical churches and of course we lost. And <laughs> and a lot of the battles were, hey, we should it's not really about God and worshipping and asking God, what do you want? What do you think honors you? But what gets the church to grow, what excites the people and gets the church excited and excitable and that's entertainment and worship. That was the battle. That's spiritual battle as well. So when I speak of spiritual battles today, I'm not saying they never have physical overtones. Of course they were, or material overtones. Because we are, a spirit, we are a spirit and we are a body. We are a body-soul complex. And they both interact with one another. Spiritual, when I use that word, is uh, another, uh, another word for moral. It's a moral reality. It's a moral battle. Are we going to do the right thing? regardless of what the world says. And God uses the church to preach the right thing. The church is the arrow in God's hands. We are Judah, we are Ephraim, we are the new Israel of God. And he uses us as a weapon to tear down the empire of Satan. Now, in the Old Testament, they didn't tear down the empire of Satan except for one little area called Palestine. That was the empire of Satan, wasn't it? The whole world's in darkness. That's a a lot of darkness there. They were taking live-born babies and offering them up on altars, burning them alive. If that's not the seed of Satan, I don't know what is. Today, it's almost as bad. It is bad. Almost as bad. The next step would be that, isn't it? Now they do it quietly and behind closed doors, inside the woman, and of course they're traumatized for the rest of their life. There, they did it publicly, open up on the hillside for the world to see. And hey, there were babies already born. That was the kingdom of darkness. And God said, this whole world, that's the place I'm going to attack the kingdom of darkness. And he put the church there. And now we're spread to the whole corners of the earth, aren't we? And so we proclaim the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to convert souls. And we conquer Satan's kingdom one soul at a time. So the strategy is different. But I'm trying to point out it's the same moral reality, isn't it? <clears throat> and so today we are given the promise of God not only of a double restoration when Christ returns and we have a new heaven and a new earth, but that he has fitted us as bows and arrows and made us like a sword of a mighty man, verse 13,
1: to tear down principalities and powers in dark places, as Paul talks about in Ephesians. Spiritual powers, lies, wickedness, that's what the church is called, to bring the light of the gospel to a dark world. That's
0: the spiritual battle that we have. We are empowered by the gospel to do that. In sanctification in particular, but I speak of course here, and I'll mention it later, of preaching to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is our calling. The calling of the Old Testament church, the calling of the New Testament church. And God has empowered us to do that. He has made us bows and arrows. He has made us swords. Even if you're not a pastor, you're a sword in his hand to the extent that you are doing what he has called you and you're calling a vocation in life. God defends his people, verses 14 to 15. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with the whirlwind from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them, and they will devour and subdue with sling stones. God is over them. We've seen this before in uh, the prior verses there. God, for I have seen them with my eyes, verse 8. God is over them, or camped around them. In verse 8, I will encamp around my house because of the army. Here, God will be seen over them. That's a picture of protection again, like a watchman and a guard. They need many reminders that God is for them as they're rebuilding God's kingdom there and that unique manifestation in the temple. And, of course, the enemies around them and the like. Do you recall when they were building the temple, every other man had a sword ready at hand or, or a spear ready at hand. God used ordinary providence to get these things done. That's the point of empowerment. I'll highlight that again in the third point. Because it's in this text. We read it here. God makes us a weapon. That means everyday life somehow. And we're going to have that again here where God says we will devour and subdue slingshots, sling stones, and drink and roar as with with wine. And we will fight against the enemies of God, the spiritual battles, the preaching of the gospel, and doing our calling and vocation in life. So as a watchman in the guard, he is there to protect them and guide them, but he works through them like a bow and arrow and a sword. We are his instruments, brothers and sisters. We are his instruments in this day and age. And they need reminders every day of that time because they were literally surrounded by people who wanted to kill them with a sword. We don't have it like that, although unfortunately more and more we hear lots of rhetoric about white Christian nationalism or something like that and how they hate that and how they want to kill people like that. And even if you don't want, like that title, I'm, I'm telling you more and more, they're saying that's what we are. Whatever, whatever you want to call it, that's what they're saying we are. And they don't like us. Uh, but thankfully, we're not literally surrounded like they were there in the land, turning around, and there they are, they could get stabbed. <clears throat> they needed that encouragement. God is a watchman. God is their Father over them, we protecting them. And we need that reminder as well at times, to be sure again, during difficult times, that God is there for us. It's not chaotic the way it looks like to the world. Just like Christ looked like he was nothing to the world, and so it looks like the church is nothing to the world, and you're nothing to the world, and the world's full of chaos. But it's not true. God is in control. And God is in charge, and God is looking over us, and he is defending us, as the idea is expressed explicitly in verse 15. The Lord of hosts will defend them, God's people. He will defend us in the defense of his people. It's interesting. They, the Lord will defend them. They, who are they? God's people shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar, roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins at the corners of the altar. Such a bloody imagery. If we read carefully, it shows us that God is using his people and they are fighting. Yes, God will blow the trumpet and God's arrow will go forth like lightning, but we saw the arrows are what? Ephraim. And the bow is Judah. So we say God is doing the battle, and God is giving us the victory. That's true, but God uses ordinary means and ordinary providence. And he overcame the enemies, the Maccabean revolt, with ordinary tools. It was amazing to be sure, because they should have lost, and God worked it just right, like that arrow flying in the Old Testament to the king's heart right through the chink in his arm. Remember that prophecy? That's how God guides everything. It's quite amazing. And it's ordinary. It wasn't like a miracle. We know it can happen. We just say the odds are very rare. God can make the rare odds 100%, percent can he, in providence. And so here, they are described as those fighting on the offensive. When he defends the church, part of that defense often is the church being offensive. That is, going out and preaching the gospel, standing firm against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and our everyday life. The Lord is over us. He is shooting us as arrows to fight in the kingdom of darkness, defense through the providential means, we read here of this description, uh, this bloody description here. The destructions of their enemies, they shall devour and subdue with sling stones. Uh, some uh, understand this to be them attacking with sling stones. Others, it seems perhaps that they are being hit with sling stones and it means nothing to them. Like Superman, they can just eat the bullet, they can eat the sling stones, and it means nothing to them. They can survive the battle and the warfare, and win? And they did, right? Judas Maccabeus won the battle, and won protection and safety for God's people at the time. And it continues on here, it says, and they they shall drink and roar as with wine. Note, of course, it's as with wine, they weren't literally drunk, it's a metaphor. But the pagans would get literally drunk to build up their courage, right? To go into battle. It's not an easy thing to meet a guy with a sword and try to kill him before he kills you. So you can have some sympathy for these guys as much as perhaps you think, well, you know, those are raw pagans and they're just like, yeah, we can do it. We're gung-ho. and They're like a a Conan, one of the pictures I have in my head, right? Conan the Barbarian. They drank. They drank often to, as they used to say, screw up their courage, to make themselves stronger and to go into battle. This is not what God's people are going to do, but they're going to fight like they did. They're going to fight so strong without fear. It's as though they were drunk. That's the imagery here. It's an imagery that should scare the enemies of God and strengthen God's people. That God will be with you such that you will stand firm. As my wife and my daughter and I read the story of Ignatius (coughs) of
1: Antioch, Bishop of Antioch, who died in about 140 AD. He stood firm against Trajan, persecutor of God's people. And Trajan didn't like that. He was insulted and said, Off to the lions with you. And Ignatius stood firm in the midst of the lions
0: and died boldly. The strength of God's people is by God's Spirit. And God has promised them and us to stand firm in our day of difficulty. We may not always stand firm the way we want it to be. Sometimes we do indeed collapse. God will never let go of us. He is over us, and protecting us. You don't think some Jews died during combat? You don't think some Jews died during the warfare? Of course they did. But they did what they had to do. Anyways, and we're called to do the same thing, that God is with us, and we're called to do whatever we have to do to follow Jesus our Lord. And, of course, the picture here is they should be filled with blood-like basins. That is the blood of their enemies. The, the blood of their enemies is flowing everywhere. They're losing left and right, and God's people are winning and are victorious. And, of course, again, it's about physical warfare. It's very bloody. It's very brutal. The Bible is very realistic about life in a way, unfortunately, many evangelicals and Reformed people are not. Life outside of an advanced civilization as America is brutal, in short. Civilization gives us those protections. It doesn't come by chance. It came by lots of hard work from our ancestors. But the promise today is empowerment of of the spiritual battle, as much as it was for them and their spiritual battle, but it was spiritual battle plus physical battles that were metaphors often and pictures of spiritual warfare
1: with the enemies of God. There is no promise of winning a ground war in Asia. I heard that joke in one of the movies. <clears throat> As Hitler found out, <laughs> trying to take on
0: Moscow and Russia. But there is a promise of winning the war with Satan. But I, actually, I want to back up on winning a land war in Asia. We do have that promise, you think about it. From one perspective, all physical warfare, we will win. And that's when Christ Jesus comes back. All warfare will be done. And he will win them all
1: and there'll be a new heaven and new earth, and no more war, but all peace. That's what we long for. We pray and work to that end. God saves his people, verses 16 to 17. The Lord, your God, their God,
0: will save them in that day, the covenant-keeping Lord, and the flock of his people, and they shall be like jewels of the crown, lifted like a banner over the land. God saves his people, preserves them, Through Jesus Christ our Lord, but also through his providence, and ultimately the day of Christ's return in the future, when no matter how bad things get, Jesus Christ shall return and conquer the enemies. It's a compassionate Savior here. The imagery changes from a warrior in which we are his arrows and bows. He's seen over us, guiding us and protecting us. And the Lord your God will save them that day as a flock of his people. He's our shepherd. We are the flock. He's the shepherd. That's the imagery here. And so the imagery has changed from shepherd or watchman to shepherd, from warrior to nurturer. But the reality is the same, even though the metaphor has changed. He loves us and takes care of us, brothers and sisters. Thankful for that. Rest assured in that fact. God loves and takes care of us. He watches over us as a sheep who needs guidance, and we need guidance. As sheep who needs protection, and we need protection. As sheep who need feeding, and we need feeding. The feeding He has given us, of course, again through providential means, through the Word and sacrament, through friends and family,
1: through prayer and meditation, encouragement. God empowers His people and protects His people and saves
0: His people. Part of the saving of His people is through the empowerment of His people. That is sanctification in particular, isn't it? Christ lived and died for us and justified us, as we
1: read this morning in Isaiah, justifies His His people, it justifies many, but he also sanctifies many, his people. And that's the idea of
0: empowerment in particular. That God has given us a spirit that we can stand firm like bows and arrows
1: and do God's bidding in wherever we are in life little things, things people never see. And that's part of what it means to be a sheep, that we are dependent
0: upon him, but at the same time, he has empowered his sheep to stand firm and to be protected in his providence. He's given us the means as sheep to be fed, to be protected, to grow. And that's the word and sacrament, that's prayer and meditation, even Christian fellowship as we need one another. So empowerment, again, is not the way the world often thinks of it, although it's not always wrong. You want to have the the power to have a church building a place to worship. That's fine, that's good, but we may not always get it. In the world, what are we? We're a small, small flock spread across this world not a place to call home very often. Even the buildings that we have, like the old buildings in the Dakotas are fading away and collapsing. Cities are gone. Carson's gone. God's people still stand. God's people are still there because God is empowering them. That's how he saves us in our sanctification and through our sanctification. And he beautifies us, brothers and sisters. He beautifies us. Verses 16 and following. They should be like jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over the land. He raises us up. When you raise the jewel of the crown, it's a, a sign of victory, a sign of triumph over the enemies. And he has triumphed over the enemies through the church, through Jesus Christ and power of the church. Christ is the head of the church. It's not as though we take all the praise and glory, but God has still glorified us. We are like jewels of a crown, lifted up over the land of his conquest. Isn't that amazing? It's like, what did I do, Lord? You were faithful in small things. took care of your house, fed your family. You worked for your family, you protected your family, you took care of the house and the, and the, and the yard, and the car, when you were sick, needed help, crazy dogs went after them, whatever your job is at home, even as a child. Take care of your sick parents, take care of your siblings. That's God working through us. That's God working victory through us. A crown of victory, a crown of power is the picture here and the beauty of the Church of Jesus Christ, the Bride of Christ clothed in Christ's righteousness, the beauty of holiness, the beauty of submission, even the beauty of God's justice. For when he conquers the enemies of God, it is
1: because he is a just God and they are unjust and wicked. And that's a beautiful thing to behold. For how great is its goodness and how great is its beauty. Its greatness and beauty, as we know, is ultimately comes from the
0: grace of God. And it ends with the prosperity of Abundance of grain and wine that makes the young men thrive, and the new wine for the young woman, they all have access uh, to bountiful, precious, and lovely, tasty things. Because God has what? Restored double to you. <laughs> we read that in the prior verses. He restored double to God's people, and He did for them historically in time and space, but for a moment, because the momentary victories, as the godly knew in the Old Testament, were but. Shadows of the future, of an everlasting victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. No more sorrow, no more tears, no more sin, no more wickedness, no more injustices. But rather the beauty of holiness, the beauty of justice, a doubling of our prosperity and the beauty of our Savior. How great is its beauty, how great is the beauty of our Lord in Christ, who is over his church. God empowers his people with the gospel. God defends his people with his power, even through his people, and saves his people, even in the midst of sanctification. Unto the beauty of holiness, let us pray. We thank you and praise you, God, above, for this passage that reminds us that you work through us, you work through our churches, you work, Lord, through the means you've given us in providence, especially in the church, God, of your word and sacraments. Public worship, Private prayer. And Lord, although we don't feel like bows and arrows, we don't feel like swords at times, but we are. And you are using us, God. A little here, a little there, and that's all it that counts. We're thankful, God, that you watch over us, that you are over us, that you are defending us, and you are continuing saving us, God, to make us more beautiful in holiness. In your name alone we pray. Amen.
1: And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.